things that made the modern economy. Perhaps the defining feature of the global economy is, um, well, exactly that. It's global. Toys from China, phones from South Korea, copper from Chile, T-shirts from Bangladesh, wine from New Zealand, coffee from Ethiopia, tomatoes from Spain. Love it or loathe it, globalisation is a fundamental feature of the modern economy. The statistics back this up. In the early 1960s, world merchandise trade was less than 20% of world economic output. Now it's around 50%. Not everyone's happy about this. There's probably no other issue where the anxieties of ordinary people are so in conflict with a near-unanimous approval of economists. And so controversy rages. The arguments over trade tend to frame globalisation as a policy, maybe even an ideology, fuelled by acronymic trade deals such as TTIP, TRIPS and the TFP. But perhaps the biggest enabler of globalisation isn't a free trade agreement, but a simple invention. A corrugated steel box, eight feet wide, eight and a half feet high, and 40 feet long, about three metres by three metres by 13. It's a shipping container. To understand why this metal box has been so important, consider how a typical trade journey looked before. In 1954, an unremarkable cargo ship, the SS Warrior, carried merchandise from Brooklyn in New York to Bremerhaven in Germany. On that trip, just over 5,000 tonnes of cargo, from food to household goods, letters to vehicles, were being carried as 194,582 separate items in 1,156 different shipments. The record-keeping alone, tracking all those consignments as they moved around the dockside warehouses, was a nightmare. But the real challenge was physically loading ships like the Warrior. The longshoremen who did the job would pile barrels of olives and boxes of soap onto a wooden pallet on the dock. The pallet would be hoisted in a sling and deposited in the hold of a ship, from where more longshoremen would carry or cart each item into a snug corner of the vessel, poking and pulling at the merchandise with steel hooks until it settled into place against the curves and bulkheads of the hold, skillfully packing the cargo so that it wouldn't shift on the high seas. This was far more dangerous work than manufacturing, or even construction. In a large port, someone would be killed every few weeks. In 1950, New York averaged half a dozen serious incidents every day, and New York's port was one of the safer ones. Researchers studying the SS Warrior's trip to Bremerhaven concluded that the ship had taken ten days to load and unload, as much time as it had done for the vessel to cross the Atlantic Ocean. In total, the cargo cost around $420 a tonne to move in today's money. Given typical delays in sorting and distributing the cargo by land, the whole journey might take three months. Sixty years ago then, shipping goods internationally was costly, chancy and immensely time-consuming. Surely there had to be a better way. Indeed there was. Put all the cargo into big standard boxes and move the boxes. But inventing the box was the easy bit. The shipping container had already been tried in various forms for decades without catching on. The real challenge was overcoming the social obstacles. To begin with, the trucking companies, shipping companies and ports couldn't agree on a standard. 
Some wanted large containers, others wanted smaller or shorter versions, perhaps because they specialised in heavy goods such as canned pineapple, or trucked on narrow mountain roads. Then there were the powerful dock workers' unions, who resisted the idea. You might think they'd have welcomed shipping containers, as they'd make the job of loading ships safer. But the containers also meant there'd be fewer jobs to go around. Stodgy US regulators also preferred the status quo. The sector was tightly bound with red tape, with separate sets of regulations determining how much shipping and trucking companies could charge. Why not simply let companies charge whatever the market would bear? Or even allow shipping and trucking companies to merge and put together an integrated service? The man who navigated this maze of hazards, who can fairly be described as the inventor of the modern shipping container system, was Malcolm McLean. McLean didn't know anything about shipping, but he was a trucking entrepreneur. He knew plenty about trucks, plenty about playing the system, and all there was to know about saving money. McLean not only saw the potential of a shipping container that would fit neatly onto a flatbed truck, he also had the skills, the nous, and the risk-taking attitude needed to make it happen. First, McLean cheekily exploited a legal loophole to gain control of both a shipping company and a trucking company. Then, when dockers went on strike, he used the idle time to refit old ships to new container specifications. He repeatedly plunged into debt. He took on fat cat incumbents in Puerto Rico, revitalising the island's economy by slashing shipping rates to the United States. He cannily encouraged New York's Port Authority to make the New Jersey side of the harbour a centre for container shipping. But the most striking coup took place in the late 1960s, when Malcolm McLean sold the idea of container shipping to perhaps the world's most powerful customer, the US military. Faced with an unholy logistical nightmare in trying to ship equipment to Vietnam, the military turned to McLean and his container ships to sort things out. Containers work much better when they're part of an integrated logistical system, and the US military was perfectly placed to adopt that system wholesale. Even better, McLean realised that on the way back from Vietnam, his empty container ships could collect payloads from the world's fastest-growing economy, Japan. And so the trans-Pacific trading relationship began in earnest. A modern shipping port would be unrecognisable to a hard-working longshoreman of the 1950s. Even a modest container ship might carry 20 times as much as the SS Warrior did, yet disgorge its cargo in hours rather than days. Gigantic cranes, weighing a 1,000 tonnes apiece, will lock onto containers that weigh upwards of 30 tonnes and swing them up and over onto a waiting transporter. This colossal ballet of engineering is choreographed by computers, which track every container as it moves through a global logistical system. The refrigerated containers are put in a hull section with power and temperature monitors. The heavier containers are placed at the bottom to keep the ship's centre of gravity low. The entire process is scheduled to keep the ship balanced. And after the crane has released one container onto a waiting transporter, it'll grasp another before swinging back over the ship, which is being emptied and refilled simultaneously. 
not everywhere enjoys the benefits of the containerization revolution. Many ports in poorer countries still look like New York in the 1950s. But for an ever-growing number of destinations, goods can now be shipped reliably, swiftly and cheaply. Rather than the $420 that a customer would have paid to get the SS Warrior to ship a tonne of goods across the Atlantic, you might now pay less than $50 a tonne. Indeed, economists who study international trade often assume that transport costs are zero. It keeps their mathematics simpler, they say. And thanks to the shipping container, it's nearly true. The key source on the shipping container is Mark Levinson's influential history, The Box. How the shipping container made the world smaller and the world economy bigger. For a full list of our sources, please see bbcworldservice.com slash 50 things.